I'm Hera. And I'm Aisha. And we are the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice, or SMCs. Like you, as SMCs, we decided to become mothers knowing we'd be the sole care provider and parent of our children, at least at the outset. And the Mocha is for Black. We discuss being SMCs from an intentionally Black lens. You'll connect with all the interesting and fun things about this non-traditional path. Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co-parent to rely on for occasional childcare, and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC. This is We have a wonderful guest host with us this morning, but before we ask our guest host to introduce themselves, I did want to do a little bit of a PSA. So since the starting of our podcast, Hera and I have been getting people reaching out to us in various forms and um, um, uh, etiquette. Um, or way. lack of etiquette. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this season, we, we really wanted to make sure that the people we brought on and the people we choose to talk to are people who not just res- respect our perspectives as Black SMCs, but also seek to engage us in a meaningful and thoughtful way. And so our, our guest hosts here and throughout the rest of the season have, have done that. Um, both Hera and I have read our, our host books. Um, I had the opportunity to sit down and talk to Rosanna Hertz as I was trying for my second child. And your book was real instrumental to getting my head around just the different ways to do (laughs) SNC. And so this is another wonderful opportunity. And my heart is warm just being able to, to talk with you and share your knowledge and experience with our audience. Yeah, so I am so thankful that you're able to talk to us. When I was in my early stages of thinking, I didn't I didn't actually stay in the thinking stage too long, but even when I was when I was trying, I was looking for all kinds of books that would help me figure out all sorts of things having to do with SMCing. And so I found Rosanna's book and I loved it. I thought it was um, exciting, also cringeworthy at times based on what, what the mom said. And and it was it it really made me have sort of deep thoughts and sit with my own feelings about this process. So I really appreciated it. So Rosanna, as one of the premier thought leaders in this area, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Sure. And thank you for that really heartwarming and lovely introduction from both of you. So I'm a professor of sociology and women's and gender studies at Wellesley College, where I chair the women's and gender studies department. I'm a family sociologist um, by training. But for the past 25 years, I focused on the emergence of new family forms and how they are expanding our understanding of kinship. And so during the mid-1990s, I began studying new families, women with jobs, careers, economic independence, who felt um, that motherhood was missing. And most recently, I've been studying unprecedented families formed by sperm donor siblings. And in this new work, Um, about the sperm donor siblings called random families. I include the voices of donor-conceived children ages 10 and up, some of their donors and, and of course, their parents. And I've also written articles on the regulatory systems in the EU and border crossing for reproductive health to Spain. And I continue to research and write about families created through donor sperm, egg, or both. So thank you. 
<laughs> no, no, thank so you. Much. Thank you. So I'm excited because we're going to talk, we're going to touch on um, both of your books, both Random Families and Single by Choice Mother, um, Single by Chance Mothers by Choice. And so, but first I want to start with how you came to learn uh, the SMC community, the SMC space, the SMC people. Sure. So it was the mid 1990s. Picture this. It's kind of an interesting story. And if you recall, Bill Clinton was newly elected and one of his first acts was around teenagers having babies and the reform of the welfare system. Um, And the problem in America was at that point in time, when you think about it today, was about, you know, teen moms and trying to stop women from becoming teen moms. So I was reading the information and um, really the newspapers. And um, I also, at the same time, like to read a strange combination of things. I like to read demography reports for fun. And I also like to read ads in newspapers, which is kind of a bizarre thing. But, you know, I like to I appreciate your nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I would totally do that, too. So. So I'm glad someone likes this does this as well. So I'm scanning these demographic reports around single mothers, and I realized that 50% of the women who are single never married and have children are not teen mothers, but they're older. And so I wanted to know more about who these women were, because they certainly were not the focus of either Bill Clinton or, if you recall, Dan Quayle at that moment. Um, and so around, or who was earlier, actually, So around that same time, um, I'm also reading in my hometown newspaper an ad that came out and it read, and I'm quoting this, are you interested in becoming a single mom? Call this number. And I thought, "Hmm, this is sort of interesting. Intentional motherhood, Uh, not these accidentally pregnant, you know, teen mothers. So I, of course, called the number. That's who I am, too. Um, And it was a local SMC group. Um, So I told them that I wasn't a single mom. I had a very young child and I really, really wanted to know all about what they were doing and could I attend their meetings. So they discussed it with their membership and they said, sure, you could come to our meetings. So I attended for a year the meetings of the thinkers, the triers, um, and also SMCs with children. Um, And I still check in with the local community. Um, I'm grateful to that community for allowing me into their lives. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I'm curious, like about that group of, of women. I mean, was it very homogenous? Were you surprised at at you know kind of socioeconomic race or um, or otherwise? Were they were they friends or like just did they randomly? Right. So it was it was sort of homogenous group insofar as the vast majority were white women and they were older which is also important. Um, They were like 38, let's say the average age. um, And, you know, and the issue was they couldn't find a partner. They weren't all straight. Um, There was a mix of women there and they weren't all trying and they, and they were trying various different routes. Um, They were all middle-class or upper middle-class is how I would describe them. Um, And that's changed um, since that point in time. Um, All of those things have changed. It's interesting because I mean, Okay, so like the 90s wasn't just yesterday. I'm probably aging myself. But like, <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'm just like the 90s wasn't that long ago. And then I'm like, oh, wait, it kind of was. But but I, it's interesting because, you know, it it's long enough ago that, you know, just to see the difference between now and how much more approachable it is as a path than perhaps in the 90s. Because I think now, I mean, Aisha and I have spoken about how the demographics have changed it, it age-wise, you know, for when a lot of women are coming to this path a little bit sooner than 
historically. And then also uh, race is a, is a big, is a big thing now, but I also wonder, is it that black women just started doing this or is it that black women never put the label on it? So so here's what I really think. I think that black women never put the label on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that these, first of all, this meeting occurred in a church basement Mm -hmm. in a working class town um, you know, which is also it, ironic, right? <laughs> like, in the church, <laughs> right? Right, and it, and you know, it still meets in that same church. All children are a blessing. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good. I know, um, but see, that's perhaps another shift. I mean, we hear we have a lot of people in our, our community who are um, very, very religious themselves, and they are questioning how the church is going to take it. And I think that you know, depending on how progressive your church is, right, perhaps, um, I think that some of them have been very surprised that, that that it's it's more commonly accepted. To go back to your original question about do Black women advertise it or just not put a label on it, how many of us have not had the conversation, regardless of socioeconomic uh, level, when you get to like your mid to late 20s, like if we're not married yeah. or don't have <laughs> kids, right? And it's kind of like formalizing that conversation where it's like if yeah. to, to, to to a male friend, if, if, if neither one of us are married, you know, by the time we hit 30, right? 30, <laughs> you know, why don't we, you know, have a child together? And right. And so it's kind of like, you know, the formalization, because even some of the people that we have seen, I would say almost in the last four weeks, join our space will say, you know, I used a known donor friend who was a friend, right? And I'm raising the child as an SNC. We have an agreement in place. So it is almost like one, they've already gone through the process of formalizing that, hey, if by 30, we don't have kids, right? And so it's that formalizing that informal conversation. And now on the back end, putting a name on it, because you didn't even know that a name existed. I mean, I would totally agree with what you're saying. The other thing is, remember, the 90s, there was no internet. So you couldn't just Google, you know, Mm -hmm. single mothers by choice or single moms and how to do it or whatever. You know, it's like totally a different period we're living in. Also, in my in the research, single by chance, mothers by choice, it was easier for me to find women of color who were adopting children, primarily out of the um, domestic system. And it was also easier for me to find what I'm called what I called in that book, women who chanced pregnancy. It was harder to locate women who conceived using commercial banks, sperm banks, or um, known donors, but I'm, I'm sure that they existed. You know, it's like, how do you tap into certain communities, which has always been a problem for social science researchers. One of the interesting, I mean, I guess one of the, the, the parts about your book that really resonated with me was when you talked about the, the catalytic event, right? And um, I think this kind of ties into how we label ourselves, you know, and perhaps also with Aisha when she had mentioned, like, we all kind of have that moment where we're like, we're not married by such and such age and whatnot. And so it's interesting to think about the catalytic events um, and, and by catalytic event, I don't know if you want to like describe it for the audience. Yeah. Thank you very much for bringing the conversation back to that, because what's sort of interesting is it's around these ideas of these milestones, like I'm not, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. I'm not married by a certain date, what am I going to do? Or it could be finishing finishing a degree or a promotion at work or having a certain set amount of money in the bank, or it could be my birthday. So it's know? like, a, it's, is it, it's the concept is basically like something happening in your life that makes you kind of have this, like, I don't know if existential crisis is the right way to describe it, but like a, a thought to yourself, like, oh, like 
I want kids and I maybe don't need to wait for the guy to have them. Right, exactly. And also the catalytic event could be something that's really sad, which is a death in the family um, and saying, look, I can't postpone this any longer. My parents would, you know, would, would have welcomed this child and I feel badly. Or it could be medical intervention, endometriosis, fibroids, and the doctor says, listen, you shouldn't be waiting any longer to get pregnant. Um, or cancer. Or right. cancer. Yeah. Yes, another yeah, one. Yeah, I wish that I had had my catalytic event three years <laughs> earlier, right? Like, because my catalytic event was very sad with the death of my son. And I think just the, the custody battle and all the things. And I wish that I had had it when I was dating with the intention of having babies. At the time, I didn't know that, right? I wasn't conscious about like, you know, is this person going to be the father of my kids? And I think it's so dangerous to date and, and rush relationships because you want babies. And so it wasn't until after my son that I was like, wait a second, what do I really want? Like, I don't really need to be pushing these relationships. I really just want to be a mom. And that's crazy. Like, I wish it just could have happened sooner. I could have saved myself a lot. A lot of heartbreak. My catalytic event (laughs) spanned like 10 years. So I pretty much, you know, I came to the SNC path um, four or five years post-divorce, right? So I was married. I was at the precipice of having it all, you know, the the love, the marriage, the 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 house, didn't have the dog yet, but was was trending, you know, onto the conversations about kids. And it just so happened that my partner and I were not aligned. Um, about it. So after 10 years, so you could basically say I knew I wanted to be a mom, right from very early on. And then my divorce happened just as I was 29. And so kind of like processing the divorce, getting back out there and dating, and then deciding what my next steps were, I, I, you know, dating, 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 I got to the point where it's just like, yeah, I, I need to do something about this if I want to have kids. And so I kind of went through all of the, the different um, variations of how to go about doing this. And then my very religious mother, stepmother was like, why don't you just have a baby the way Halle Berry did, you know, go get yourself a sperm donor. And I was just like, what? And you know, does, is the church okay with that? You yeah. know, but you know, so that was like opening the door. But really, I spent probably four or five years in the, the, the thinking and the thinking phase, because I needed to do this last trip. I needed to kind of get my heart right. I needed to do one last chance to see if I can identify a social dad, identify a social dad. And then, you know, I got on the path. So for me, the cataclysmic, it wasn't a, uh, a cataclysmic event per se. It was a cataclysmic kind of phase in my life where I needed to to hurry up and get myself there. But but yeah, it is really interesting to hear the different triggers for for women. So I'm wondering when you were meeting with this group of women, and I know you've you've kind of maintained contact with this community throughout your research, have you noticed a shift with with the shift in demographics, you know, age and all these other factors? Have you noticed a change in what types of catalytic events, you know, are happening? Like, I mean, I imagine with older women, it was it was probably a lot of like, I don't have time, right? My biological clock is not going to allow me to have kids much longer. But now that it's sort of changed, have you, have you heard more different various stories? So what's it's so interesting is, no, I've just heard that this, that the time frames are at younger ages. 
mm-hmm. um, as the major, the major, major shift going on. And it's much more global than we had ever thought. And I want to say the final thing is, you know, you, you talk about, you know, how, how does the church respond to this? Um, you know, did I gonna tell my family I'm doing this this way? So one of the distinguishing features is this idea that um, SMCs need to get permission almost from family right, members or from right. other people, which, you know, I have never put in print, but it's sort of interesting to think about uh, married couples don't get permission, but, but the, the critical issue here is with the permission, it's really saying, listen, I'm not going to rush to the altar to just marry any person. Um, And I'm willing to say uh, what I'm really doing here is reversing the nursery rhyme. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. So it's not like I'm opposed to a partnership or raising a kid with a partner. It's that I need to do this first um, and stop. And, and I'm going to take control of my life and I have agency as a woman. Right. Um, So, so I will say, um, kind of picking up from that, the, the whole family piece is that, yeah, I kind of, I was one of the people who my parents are deceased. So I didn't have to have that mm. parental, you know, approval. So I kind of just floated it out there to my sisters who are my peers. And, you know, it's really like, I'm just giving you an FYI, there's going to be a, additional little people at the Thanksgiving table. But what I found was that, Whereas my my immediate family, yeah, it was nice to have, but then out of donor conception came this whole other family. Like I had a, a donor sibling, sister mom, um, that I reached out to, and it was you know all all of the awkwardness of you know first date, first time dates, right? It's uh-huh. just like you know, is this person sane? You know, is this person uh-huh. like let me let me Google you, and which was fun, but this person ends up has ended up being almost like a sister to me in terms of our conversations in terms of the support that we we have we both tried for our second child um, using the same donor around the same time and so you know we ebbed and flowed and leaned in and I found that I am really looking forward to to growing the relationship with our children and these kids and which kind of leads into your second book which is random families and so I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you found um, through your research and through writing of the second book? You know, we get a lot of questions related to the outcomes for donor-conceived children. Um, And first of all, I think part of the issue is that we only interviewed in that book um, people, families in which the parents had told the child Mm -hmm. that they were donor-conceived. You know, so when you hear about, I'm I'm constantly asked about these angry children and, you know, what's all that about? Um, And I think that that's really parents who keep secrets and don't tell their kids um, about whatever the route was that was taken. Um, And this is most evident on some of the websites I belong to, where adults discover that their father or their mother is not biologically related to them, often through 23andMe or whatever. It's like, oh my goodness, I, you know, this was never told to me by anyone. So one of the things that I learned about um, um, the kids themselves is being donor conceived is part of the fabric of their lives because their parents told them from young ages on, but they still face challenges. For example, what's a donor? That would you have a donor, you don't have a dad. I mean, what does that mean? So like donor is a hollow concept and parents and children co-construct who that person is, um, which is sort of interesting. Um, and it's like, what do you then tell your friends about, um, where your dad is. 
So, and kids do have these narratives, you know, around this that makes it, you know, be a, a kind of uh, Disney story. Um, you know, yes. shitty things happen to lots of people or things happen this way, but, you know, I'm very loved. My mom is very loved. And some nice guy helped my mom by putting um, a seed into um, a bank and my mom was able to um, use that seed. Mm-hmm. So on early ages on, so kids want to be able to identify with, with who that person is. And one of the things that donor uh, siblings do or kids who share the same um, sperm donor is that they give kids a way to identify with one another. And they've created, as you're talking about, some great friendships mm-hmm. um, for families themselves um, who meet regularly who embrace one another's children. It's like a a community that's being formed. It's like, how do we expand kinship in new and exciting ways, even though they may not be legally or even sometimes socially recognized, but something else that I think, and then I'll stop talking. This is sort of interesting is that kids love the shock and the drama of telling a new teacher or a friend that they have 10 siblings. They do. Oh yeah, it happened in my family. (laughs) I, I was in, we were in virtual school at the beginning of the year and I was literally at, you know, she was at the desk right there and I'm, and I'm sitting right here and the teacher is talking about families. And my seven-year-old was like, I have 12 brothers and sisters. And the teacher was like, oh, honey, that's nice. And she was like, well, we all have different moms. And of course the teacher's like, you know, mind blown. And I'm just, I'm just like, dear you know, parents, this happened. I, I am, today. I am literally just like trying to muffle a laugh because I can see like the other parents in the background, like now all riveted in this whole story about like you know this gigolo who like go around with all these women. Um, so it, you know, it obviously prompted like a follow up Evo where I'm like, so what happened was, um, and and I and I also think it's interesting that you know the. I always feel like we're kind of constantly not like necessarily always undoing things that happened at school, but it's certainly, you know, I've also been privy to conversations where a teacher will be like, you know, this is a bow tie. Like go ask your dad if he wears a bow tie. And like my kids, the one was like, well, I don't have a dad. So who should I ask? And, and like, I always be, I'm always very conscious about statements my kids make and not like projecting my own feelings on them. Right. So like, if they say that it's like, yes, that's a fact. Right. Whereas the teacher might be like, well, like the teacher's response was, oh, well, I don't have a dad either. Like he left with, you know, it was like TMI bleeding all over the class. And my daughter's all like, uh, sorry to hear that. Not that that story, but. Um, And so it's interesting. uh, You know, it's, it's certainly interesting to, to hear from you, given that you have talked to, to all these, um, donor conceived children. And I'm wondering, like, of the kids that you have spoken to, uh, have, how, how is it, how's the breakdown between like kids who want to know the donor, kids who don't want to know the donor, like, how are they feeling when they're getting to like 18? Yeah. So I just want to say one thing about that great story. You know, it's sort of interesting. That's one of the things that emerged out of the pandemic, because you got to see what's really Uh happening in real time with your kid and what they really are saying. Um, But, you know, it's like for kids, it's a fact. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have the cultural and social implications um, uh, that adults attach to saying, oh, you know, this person has 10 donor siblings. But I think it also took me a while, like when she was younger and she she started, she went through this phase where every guy, she thought every guy's name was daddy. Right. Right. It's like, she didn't know that it wasn't a name. 
And so I was like, no, like his name is John. He might be a daddy too, but he's also just John. Right. And so she would do things like she would go up to the grocery store person and be like, daddy. And I, and he would of course like (laughs) turn completely red. And I was like, not Stella's daddy, right? Like Stella doesn't have a daddy. And so we would go through all these things. And I think initially when she was doing this, I was like, I went through this period where I was like, sort of taking it personally. I was like, is she feeling a loss? And I really think it was just her trying to figure out her world. Right. Yeah. And so I had to make a point to not project and react and just be like, you're right. That is not Stella's daddy. Right. Like, I will add to that. I had mm-hmm. to, I had to back my daughter up. SMCing is all different and how these, how our little people um, tell their stories is different. So my mm-hmm. daughter, she, her first telling of the story was when she was four and in um, preschool and, you know, the kids, I guess, were going around talking about their family. And so Noelle came around and said, I have a donor. And so the teacher kind of like brushed her off, like, no, you don't have a donor. And so, you know, at the end of the day and talking through her day, you know, we talked through what happened. And so this came up and I was like, oh, okay. Didn't react to it. So then wrote the, um, her teachers and the director of the preschool. I said, you know, this is Noelle's story. Here's what you can do to support her and telling her story. Cause then I had to give them the backstory. I had to say, you know, Noelle is donor conceived, so she does not have a social dad. She actually has a donor that we identify in our home as the donor. And so I had to first educate the Mm -hmm. teachers and then tell them how they can support her in telling her narrative. And from that point forward, you know, that was her first foray. But I will tell you, when you enter the school system, all of the rules go out the window. And Mm -hmm. so that's why it's like, you want to be the parent, you want to be the one who initiates that narrative. You know, like you said, for for the, the children that are grounded in their story, it's because it is a fact of their life and has always been a fact. So there is nothing missing. SNC families are complete. And then now when you enter the school system, you have to then um, prepare the, the teachers and how they can support these kids because it's all everything. And you know, there, there are some parents in traditional families who are cringing, like this, this blasphemy, you know, you well, I also, like, can we just talk about how terrible it was that the teacher like corrected her yeah. when she was talking about her family? It like, was, that is but- so foul. It's like she, if she was wondering about it, if she had a question, the teacher should come to you and been like, Hey, I just want you to know that she said this. They should. And you know, my attitude has changed on that just a little bit because not everyone gets the the proper training and a lot of things are happening at rapid pace. So what mm-hmm. I will say is that I handle my schools and the doctors and all those different situations the same way I handle my family. You know, when you tell your family that you're an SMC, you got to give them a beat to absorb it. What does that mean? And open mm-hmm. up the space to ask their questions and then move on. So one of the things I did in the email is that, you know, um, I could provide you with the Todd Parr storybook about, you know, different families and different things like that. And so, but after that point, they handled it with grace. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. they, ne- they never met a, made a misstep, you know, after that. But I think, you know, I'm trying to, to navigate the world with a little bit more fluidity in terms of how these things happen, because there are going to be situations. My daughter was in an elevator and she said, mommy, how come that man has a dress on? And again, I had to try not to react. And then I had just had to let her speak her truth and say, well, dresses, anybody mm-hmm. can wear dresses, you know, man, women, um, non-binary people. And I have to use actual language, you know, for her because I'm also learning language with her. And so, but you hit on the key thing, Hera, I can't mm-hmm. react 
from like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed that you said this thing. Yeah, it's like you can't project your feelings. But adults should be able to say, I'm an adult, here's a kid, and here's a teachable moment for that kid. I just wanted to say, I just love that story. But, you know, the real critical issue is we don't have the language. Schools are not, teachers are not given that language. Um, And that's partially, and random families, partially what we're talking about a lot is what language people use and how that language changes. And, and, you know, the the idea that a donor's hollow concept, you know, permeates both the school, the kids, the teacher, you know, so, I mean, I love what you did and I love how then they, the school picked up on it. One, two, three, once you stepped in and said, this is my kid's truth. And, you know, this is the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, we, yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, one last thing on the, um, some folks in our space, we have, we've heard lots of, um, nervousness around, and I don't know if it's like, I don't know if fencing is even the right term, but like folks that they, they want to use a known donor because they're worried about how the kids can feel about having an anonymous donor or like a donor from a sperm bank. Because of that, women can get into trouble because they will use a known donor and maybe not have the proper legal um, things, or maybe they'll be tempted to ask a friend and then things get really, like, really messy. And so I'm wondering, you know, through your research, have you found a huge difference between like women who have used known donors and how the kids feel about that versus like from a sperm bank? But I would say to you, so here's what's sort of interesting. In the single mother's book um, in particular, and I have others that come out of the random families book that we really didn't write up in that particular narrative, but there are a couple of things. A lot of women do start out saying, I really want a known donor because I want a face to show my child. And this was in some ways before um, you, you did, there are pictures on the bank site that you can show your kid. Um, a lot of that didn't work out for various reasons. You know, a guy says, um, you know, I'm willing to be a donor, but what about my mother? I really want her to be a grandmother, blah, 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 blah. I really want to be able to say what school my kid, your, the kids go to. I really want more contact. So for a lot of women, they backed off and they said, listen, this is not going to work out. I don't want that person involved in those ways in my kid's life. Now, from the kid's perspective, those who have known donors don't imagine the donor or have to construct the donor in the same ways that those who have sperm bank donors do. Because there's a person there, the mom can say, you know, here's this person, whether it's an egg or sperm donor, but here's this person, you know, they, they, you share the genetic material with them and the kid has a face to that person. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas for those kids who, who, whose mom chose to go the commercial route, um, they are more likely to then co-produce that donor. Mm. So um, I had asked earlier, like, you know, what is the percentage of kids who want to know versus uh, right. don't want to know? And I wonder if that, I mean, if this topic sort of factors in, like you were saying, okay, if they have a known donor, they're like, yeah, I got it. Know this person. I'm good. Is that all up though? Like of the, of the donor conceived children that you've talked to, like how, what's the breakdown of kids and how they're feeling about, you know, at 18? Okay, terrific question. I'm glad that you returned to that. So in the 7008ers who we feature in Random Families, it turns out, so these are all kids that were interviewed as teenagers. Um, And then I've come back to that group. Most recently, I had coffee with them. This doesn't appear in the book. So this is kind of 
fun information. Oh, we get extras. Um, yeah, no, I know. <laughs> so, um, and they actually did find this anonymous donor, okay, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other story, but I'm having coffee with a bunch of them. And I said, so, you know, in when we interviewed you, when you were like 15 to 17, 18 year olds, most of you, a third of you said you didn't want to meet the donor. A third of you said you definitely really wanted to meet the donor, but he had rights to remain anonymous. But a third of you actually said, I'm on the fence. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, what happened and how did you deal with, you know, different responses within the network? Because the kids were all mm-hmm. sort of close or they were all in contact with one another. So they said that they were very sensitive to the fact that within the group, there were differing opinions upon, about what they wanted to know. Mm-hmm. So only a third of them approximately have met that particular donor. Um, mm-hmm. Those who didn't want to know did want some medical updates and that kind of information. Um, and it's very random as to whether or not they had, a, you know, a mom family, a two mom family, yeah, I was ask a mom and that. a dad. Yeah. So it was it was pretty random, especially the kids who were ambivalent and on the fence. You know, they said this wasn't important mm-hmm. to their lives um, to know that person necessarily. They had a, they had a whole life. They had a whole family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was somebody who donated sperm and they loved the donor siblings more, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. And that was what was really important to them about having this paternal kin, in quotes, um, than, in fact, meeting the donor. So they they all weren't gung-ho to, you know, meet the donor. The couple that did said that it was really wonderful to get those updates. Um, And what they really wanted to know was, you know, the, the donor profile is a static piece of paper. And really what they wanted to know was, first of all, did that person ever think about me? Which is an interesting, interesting point. And then they wanted to be able to have coffee with that person. And they wanted to be able to find out if that person had achieved whatever it was they wrote in the donor profile. You know, I'm going to get a graduate degree. I'm going to become a soccer famous player. I want to be a filmmaker, whatever it was. They wanted to know. You know, what happened in somebody's life, which is why I love to go back to the people I've interviewed and, you know, and continue to interview them over time, because as a researcher and as a kid, that profile is no different. It's the static piece of paper. And you want to know, you know, what happened to that individual who you now realize at age who gave sperm, let's say at age, I don't know, 23, I'm going to be almost that age. What does what what happened to that person? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It kind of sounds like closure, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, that you, you have this curiosity about yourself or, you know, what your, what your makeup is. And it is hard when you have just a piece of paper. And even if the person I think doesn't have a connection, like a, a huge emotional connection, I think that, you know, I can understand the curiosity of being like, did this turn out? Okay. Like, it's just like right. the story of this person that you've been thinking thinking about, right, and, and, and wanting to know. So I, it's totally interesting. The, the other point I want to make is very few of these kids saw that person as a dad. They saw that person as a genetic parent, which is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so they weren't looking for a dad. I mean, by age 18, they're not looking in the same ways for an embrace of that nature, um, which I also think is really important um, because, mm-hmm. you know, parents, because the kids flip back and forth with that language of I have a dad, I have a dad, I have a sperm donor, I have, so they flip back my father, you know, mm-hmm. um, and what they're talking about is a genetic person, right. um, you know, which is important for certain things, but not always for everything. And particularly that person didn't, you know, wasn't there for all the great milestones in your life and the memory making and everything else. So, you know, but that person has a, 
a pro- made a promise to a bank to show up if they are identity released. What's sort of interesting is these guys do show up in a way that I would have been really surprised at. Um, they what's, aren't the deadbeat dads, you know, that we What's always about. concerned me about, I mean, okay, there's lots of things like, you know, I think about the, the, the identity release, like, you know, what if something happens to that person before 18? And so this kid is like, you know, hell bent on, let's say they're hell bent on meeting him and they feel like, okay, well, my mom has done all the things to make sure that I can meet this person 18. And I can imagine that being a huge letdown if that's not, for example, um, if it's not available or, I mean, I know that that also requires them to be findable, you yeah, know, I think- like, I think you you it it's it's general across the board. It's um, balancing expectations, right? And so you're trying to mitigate for all of the things that could potentially happen. You know, maybe the the donor is no longer alive, or you know, maybe the donor meets you and it's just like, yeah, I'm good. Maybe the donor meets you and it's just like, yeah, you know, let's go for coffee once a month and let's do this. So you you really don't know what another person is going to do and all of this. And so it's just kind of like balancing the expectations. You want to be truthful and honest. Um, but for me, I try not to to build up this person for anything more than it was than, you know, a genetic contribution to your genetic makeup. And kind of, you know, and then follow my kids lead. Uh, you know, I don't know what they're going to say either. They're little people that factor into this, too. Yeah. OK, <laughs> I just I, what I, I just want to say, though, that's what's sort of really interesting to me as well is women who find these donors ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question becomes that in some ways, anonymity can't be guaranteed for donors today. Yeah. And, you know, more and more, it may be that we shift to a system that certain countries already have in place, which is if a donor wants to meet the child, meets, meet the child and, and the child's parents at younger ages than age 18, which is the legal age, um, that may in fact be happening. But what I have is examples, many of them, of um, uh, mothers in particular who found the donors and they don't tell the donors, but they sleuth them or they watch them on Facebook because it's you know the same thing. It's an expensive package. And if you have an expensive package that you're sending, you're going to mm-hmm. put a tracker on it. <laughs> so, I know. also wonder about, you know, like just imagining myself, you know, if, if I were a donor, I, and I had, you know, my own biological kids that, that I was mothering, I would feel it would, it would be strange to me that this, um, that this donor sibling network was meeting each other and having the experience of growing up together. And then my child was sort of left out of that. And then at 18 or when kids started turning 18, like presumably this, this, my child would meet these kids. And I wonder if they would sort of feel like left out or, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, I, I think personally for me, I would want, I would want my child to at least know that these children existed and, and, and grow up kind of knowing that, that, that it was their choice, whether or not they connected. So if you uh, think about the sperm banks that you went to, um, on those banks, there's a sibling registry. Which oh, is so we're in touch with, yeah, we're in touch yeah, with right. many of the ones that we know about. I guess I'm talking about like from the donor's perspective, if he then goes on to have his own children, those children are presumably oh. going to find out about these other kids, right? Even if it's just like via 23andMe and be like, oh, I mean, I would hope that their father would tell them because that would be a interesting surprise. 
but yeah, I would imagine that it might be weird for that child to find out at 18 or, or potentially that would be the first time that they would be able to connect with these siblings. I mean, that's a really interesting point. While I don't have this in this research, uh, the kids that the donor is raising tend not to have relationships with the donor siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like two different groups, which is sort of mm-hmm. interesting, though I do have um, in, in random families, uh, um, uh, a sperm donor who showed up early and for the first meeting took his daughter oh, to that meeting, mm-hmm. which has a number of implications. Um, but she, first of all, wanted to know and wanted to meet the kids, but he was also making a point to the group saying, you know, this is my, in-. and they, the kids interpreted it as, him saying to them, this is my real child, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is a terrible way to think about that. Um, well, you know, it's, it is the kid he's raising. Yeah. It is all very interesting. And we can talk about this for hours, right? Because it, it all depends mm-hmm. on, you know, how those expectations were set for that, um, that man's family, you know, what he, what he intended to do when he brought the, his, his biological um, raising child to the meeting. And, you know, so there are so many different, you know, aspects of this. And I think, um, for me, the most healthy thing is to just kind of, you know, be be led by the kids and have healthy boundaries. Because mm-hmm. when these men donate, it is a tissue donation. And I think if you think of it as anything more than that, without permission to think of it as anything more than that, then you get yourselves into to troubled waters. I'm one who, I'm the kid, like I, I think I told you, I'm the kid who would not have eaten the marshmallow. I am the rules uh, I girl. I would have totally eaten the marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the rules girl until the rules no longer work for me. And I, I bury Pandora's box in the backyard and grow an apple tree on top of it. I'm not touching it, you know, because it it really, for me, it really is only a teeny part of my story. And it's a teeny, I think it's a teeny part of my children's story, but it could be a bigger part of their story. And I want them to flourish and blossom in whatever that story is going to be for them. Um, I think it's, I think there's, there's interesting parallels, um, I think, between this topic and how people identify racially. Like I always tell people, I, I cringe when people tell me to check boxes for my kids, like for race, because I feel like it's such a, it's such an important thing for someone to be able to do for themselves, like tell the world what their identity is. And so when we think about this topic, I think like Aisha said, it's important for the kids to be able to internalize this and decide how they feel about it and how they want to identify themselves and to others, you know, we can certainly help shape that narrative as parents and, and, and help them kind of place themselves in the world, which I think we all, we all do. And this is like a, you know, evolving topic, but similar to checking the race box, I try to make a point. I mean, I I tell my kids all the time, like, Hey, mama is a black woman, right. And biracial is a category of black, right. So I tell them how I identify and why I identify the way that I do. But I also want to be conscious of the fact that my kids may feel differently about how they identify with the world. And I don't want to like put that on them. So, Sarah, since you brought up race, let's <laughs> talk about race, right? So we are called Mocha SMCs and we specify the Mocha for a particular reason because we found that in our spaces, there are conversations that need to be handled with a degree of sensitivity that we don't necessarily see in the, the larger, whiter spaces. And so 
both her and I, we read your book, um, um, the single by chance book. We read it once when we were trying to conceive and then we read it again recently. And I can tell you the reading of that book raised different questions back when I was trying to conceive and to the questions that were raised now and, and different things stood out in the book. So one of the things that, that stood out in the book and I, Hera and I, we, we talked about this, um, the things that we really appreciated was how you handled race um, in the book. Obviously, you're not a Black woman, but I think you did a really good job of kind of standing back and letting the the subjects of the different pieces tell their story and speak to race in a non-judgmental but thoughtful um, fashion. So we wanted to to talk a little bit more about that. Um, I know for me, when I read your adoption narratives, those ones stood out for me um, because you sometimes had transracial adoptions and then you had people having to to think about how to um, raise a child of a different race or ethnicity in a culturally competent way. And so can we talk about that? Yeah. So I, when I read it the first time, you know, you read, sometimes you read books and you like read for different reasons, right? So when I was first reading your book, I read it, you know, as a mom who was like trying. And, and so I would, you know, take certain pieces from parts and then sort of leave others. And so when I reread it, I was reading it through the lens of Mocha SMC. And I, and I particularly teased out some of the racial elements. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, there's one story of like a white adoptive mom whose, whose parents were like very excited that she was going through the adoption process and even gave her some money to, to go with this. And she ultimately ended up uh, adopting a black child, and I was. It was interesting because in the in the book, it, it almost seemed like they were like, "Oh well, I'm going to take it back now that it's a black child." And they have like a lot of really strong feelings about this, and I was amazed at. I was I was like trying to envision you sitting there having this conversation and having to keep a straight face while all this mom was describing this experience. And so I wondered, like, how did you experience this story? Well, first of all, it's tough to listen to the ways in which race becomes constructed. Um, and, you know, as a researcher, you have to step back and say, look, I want to understand their story from their perspective, and I want to be able to make sense of it. And um, what's most interesting to me is that from a biological perspective, you know, there are no races, but race is a real cultural, political, and economic concern in our society. And Rebecca, who's the woman I'm talking about there, her parents were disappointed because they did not think a black baby would fit in within their family, within the extended family. And remember that families are in some ways very conservative um, institutions where fit, which is about visual representation, yeah. is a really critical piece of this. And what the adoption chapter does is it, it shows the glaring ways in which Adoption is a much more visible idea um, than um, even donor use in some ways. And so um, Rebecca's family was all white. And that's a really important fact for me. Um, there were no um, people of color in their family at large, and they worried about whether they could love a baby who was not white or like them is how I would put it. So I do, I gave, I give Rebecca credit for going ahead with adoption because she really, really wanted an infant that came without a history of whatever. Mm -hmm. 
And she also wanted a, a child who was not from an international country. I don't even know if she could have afforded that. I'm, it's unclear to me, but she wanted to adopt domestically. And, um, and she was there at the birth of that child. Um, she was um, actually one of those women who put in a, um, a, a picture book and um, the teen mom who was African-American and the dad, um, uh, the, the birth parents both said, this is the person we would like to adopt this child. And after the child was born, uh, Rebecca went to pick up the child, but she didn't go back directly to um, her hometown in Boston. But what she did was she went to the birth mom's house and met the birth father and the extended family, all of whom were uh, identified as African-American. Now, what's also sort of interesting is that this was an open adoption. Um, and when her baby was a young teenager, they reconnected with the birth mom um, because Rebecca felt that knowing her and having a relationship with her was important. So while I have to say it made me cringe over the beginning of the story with her parents objecting and then giving her money and then saying, you know, it shouldn't be a black baby and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. As Rebecca's story unfolds, um, you know, she did what she wanted to do, even though her parents mm -hmm. weren't happy. Right. So that I had to come to respect Rebecca and wonder about, you know, these parents who said, oh, it's all fine and we'll just embrace the child, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so in some ways, you know, the, as the story unfolds around her life, you get a very different sense about how those relationships develop. And for Rebecca, part of the, the concern becomes, how do I find a space in which my daughter's identity can be primary mm -hmm. because spaces tend to be divided so much. And so that's another issue that I explore somewhat in that chapter as well, this idea of black and white spaces mm -hmm. or Asian um, and white spaces and how, how, do, how do women who adopt bridge those um, spaces, which is also, I think, important. Yeah, it's also interesting. I mean, I, I, I love how she tried to reconnect with the, the, the birth mother, because um, I think that'll be a great resource for her daughter, just to support for the cultural competency aspect. But I think what's interesting there is a lot of times in these spaces, we hear from moms who end up using a donor of a different race. And I think because they, they don't feel that that they have to, right? They're like, oh, well, this child is, you know, white or this child is black, like, and they're not necessarily like, it, what's interesting here is we have with adoption stories, like, like the one story that you shared, that's obvious that that child has a different uh, racial identity than the mom, right? And I think it's great that she recognized that and embraced that and, and went to find resources for her daughter. Um, and, it's, and it's great that it was an open adoption. So she had access to the, to the birth mom. But I think what's interesting is we hear a lot about, and this happens in both the white space and the black space, where when moms use donors of a different race, uh, you see sometimes they don't necessarily feel the need to affirm that other race or respect the fact that their child may have a different racial identity than them. Because they're like, oh, well, they're, you know, if I'm white, they're white, right? And that's not really how it works. So, mm -hmm. 
So I think the issue of race is uh, is incredibly sensitive when it comes to commercial donors. First of all, mm-hmm. we did ask in these studies, you know, how did you choose a donor, which was a you know a very neutral question. I didn't know how people would respond, but you know how you have those filtering abilities on those websites. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the the women we interviewed who um, or the parents we interviewed who were raising children of another race are oftentimes two parent families, first of all, among white families, um, Mm -hmm. which one is white, one isn't white. So they're going to match the donor to the other person. But let's just talk about single mothers, because they're somewhat different in in many ways. Um, And I'm still trying to puzzle through um, this topic, which I think is really, really important, which is that white women unapologetically select white donors. And how do they measure whiteness? Well, they say that uh, they use ethnicity as a guide. Um, the donor is of Swiss ancestry, German ancestry, whatever. You can filter all this stuff, as you all know. Um, but women who identified as either Black, African-American, Caribbean American usually found it more difficult to find a donor who was of the same ethnic background. Mm-hmm. And so they were more likely to look for features that were in their extended families. Now, they also made statements like, you know, there are, you know, white women in my family, there are, you know, uh, biracial um, individuals in my family, this one married that one, that one married the other one. There was a greater diversity within those families around skin tones, around race, around however you want to identify those factors. So I'm not, I don't see, think race is a privilege, which is what I once thought, you know, are you choosing a lighter donor um, to privilege your child? I don't think it's that at all, because in fact, what women of color said was really no different than um, the white women, which was that. I wanted to balance height, which is a privilege. All right. Mm-hmm. If I'm a short donor, I want a tall donor. I cared about health. You know, health was a big one. And I cared about um, identity release among the younger women I've interviewed. Yes. So in fact, those filters become the same. It's around the issue of um, skin tones or facial features that there's this matching that goes on. Because in because you want to be able to, again, I'm saying families are, are conservative for everyone. You want to be able to match something about that child to other members of your family and to yourself. So it's it interesting, though, be. the concept of privilege. It's interesting. Like, I wonder if people um, have an assumed privilege with open ID, right? Like, is it a privilege? Is it giving your affording your kids another privilege to be able to attach a face to a donor? Like. I don't know. I, I don't, I, I think like, I don't know that we've like studied it enough to say like outcomes of kids are different if, you know, X, Y, Z, but I could certainly see how women might see that as a, as well, giving their kid a privilege. And I, and I, I do think it might vary in, in, I think in both communities I've heard, I think it is seen to some degree as a privilege because there is the fetishization of this child is beautiful. I've heard that in both the the black SMC spaces and in the white SMC spaces, a lot in the white SMC spaces, like this child is beautiful. I get to pick, I I get to pick a donor. Why can't I pick my child's features? Um, But I also 
give weight to the fit aspect because a lot of the younger SMCs who will who will use a donor of a different race, and I say younger because I think generationally, this next generation from my generation are more open to dating um, interracially and across color lines. They will say, I have a lot of biracial people in my family. And so when I have this baby, this baby is not coming into a space that is um, homogenous in terms of its ethnic makeup or it's all black, you know, so then I'm going to have a biracial baby come and fit in and stand out like a sore thumb. You know, they're they're saying essentially what um, was the opposite of what the adoptive mom was saying. Like, we do want my kid to fit. What mm-hmm. that fit looks like is different, but it's kind yeah. of still the same. I want my kid to fit. Um, and then just to put a period on that story, for me, I had to I had to choose donors twice. Um, my my kids have different donors, and I really was intentional about picking like you know for no my my first I wanted the height I wanted you know um, I wanted hair that was textured and can be braided into a corn roll without any fuss or muss because that's part of my ethnic culture. Um, and so while I wasn't going. Um, I was looking for a black donor, could not find a black donor. There were like two that were open ID. And I was thinking like that limits the dating pool for my kids. So let me go across the color spectrum. So where you say white women are looking at ethnic makeup, like Swiss, you're, you know, or, you know, Eastern European, I was looking across the color spectrum, mm-hmm. right? So ethnicity didn't matter to me. Once I could not get a black donor, I was like, okay, I want my kid to look like they match me. Right. So I went across the brown spectrum. Um, And then when I tried for my second, I wanted my two daughters to match. Right. And so then again, I went with the brown spectrum, but then I also needed to factor in blood type. And so it got a bit more complex. Um, So I just wanted to put a period on that to kind of help answer that question for you from this one black person's perspective. (laughs) So I want to I want to make sure we talk about like surveys, data, representation and um, a discussion about race in the SMSP space wouldn't be complete without asking this very important question. How can MOCA or Black SMC's members participate in your surveys? So at the moment, I'm debating what I'm doing in the future. Uh, but I would love, love, love just to do a study um, that had MOCA SMC's as um, centering their voices. Because if you think about the research from the very beginning of this conversation, much less of it um, had um, women of color in it in general. And so, and I think that they tell a very different narrative in some ways. And in some ways it's the same narrative, but we need to have those voices there because I think in some ways um, going to sperm banks or adopting, but particularly sperm banks themselves is going to be, it is the wave of the future. And I end the um, single by chance mothers by choice book that way. Um, And so, and I think more and more younger women will do that, but they, but they need to see themselves in the literature or in these books. Um, And they need to see the differences that occur and why let's say filtering occurs this way or that way, or how banks themselves have a cutoff on education or on height that may in fact be problematic for certain ethnic or racial groups in America. So there's like a lots to be done in this space um, as, as more and more women come forward who um, are single mothers by choice, who are of color. 
So, um, so I'm hoping in the, in the future to maybe get the two of you to help me um, oh, to do great. some work around that topic yes, um, yes, and absolutely. to, you know, to try to, to try to puzzle out, you know, what's similar, what's different, and how we then use that to constitute this idea of family in the future and going forward. Um, and I think that that's going to change in many, many ways for all of us, um, regardless of um, how you identify and what race you are. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank, thank, you. thank you. I loved meeting you all. And, um, and this was just so much fun to think about and try to puzzle through. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I look forward to staying in touch. Well, Pod, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now.